everyone. This is Scott. I am back from a long hiatus, ready to start season two of Talking Documentary. So I've given a lot of thought to what would make a good second season, and I've reached the conclusion that the most valuable thing I can give to this podcast is my own curiosity. I'm finding that I'm drawn really to the intimate documentaries, the one where the filmmaker and the subject of the documentary really enter into this very private and intense zone. That requires a lot of trust, and it really makes me wonder, how do filmmakers achieve that very intimate, sensitive space with a subject? So we'll start season two with a filmmaker named Drew Zenthopoulos. His documentary, The Sensitives, is a great example of this genre. It follows three people struggling with multiple chemical sensitivity, or MCS. What makes the people in Drew's film so interesting to me is they live kind of an underground life far away from mainstream humanity they are marginalized sometimes ridiculed and quite vulnerable and that's where drew comes in he has a deft touch with people that is the skill beyond composition lighting audio that makes this kind of film possible it's drew's humanity that allows his subjects to be whole and unguarded and as a consequence we as viewers go on a journey we would never otherwise take the sensitives was shot roughly 10 years ago and it was released in 2017. So this is not a newer film, but it really holds up. Anyway, here's my conversation with Drew. Welcome, Drew. Thanks, Scott. Thank you for having me. This is really wonderful. So The Sensitives is a film about multiple chemical sensitivity. I'm wondering, how did you identify your subjects for the film? I'm sure there's a process of meeting lots of people and then settling on your ultimate subjects. Can you tell me in some depth how you went through that process? I first came about the subject matter from a photo essay in the New York Times. I think it was called Canaries. And it was by a photographer named Tilda Jensen. And I don't know, I saw this piece and it just haunted me for, for months. And eventually I got the courage to contact her and uh, see if she'd get on the phone with me and talk to me about the process. She herself had had um, chemical and electrical sensitivities and then recovered and then sort of became a photographer and wanted to document uh, lives of people she'd met and come across from her experiences. So I got on the phone with her and I asked her a million questions. And for every question she answered, I had two more questions. And and eventually, you know, she said, well, listen, I'm going to be I'm working on a book version of this essay. I'm going to be traveling around the country. I'll be passing through, you know, close to where you are. Actually, there's a community of of people with sensitivities that I'm going to be photographing. Do you want to join me? I said, sure. So I just jumped into the deep end and joined Tilda and got to sort of shadow her and see what, what that lifestyle looked like, what it looked like to, you know, have your life completely upended by mysterious illness you can't you know wrap your head around and are searching for answers for and um and tilda basically was the gatekeeper for introducing me to people within the community because you know she was of that community i wasn't i have no personal connections i at the time i had no personal connections um to chemical or electricals you know electrically sensitive people um so she kind of led me through the gates so to speak and and vouched for me. Um, and that's, that's how I started meeting people. And I met a lot of people. Um, for me choosing the final casting in the film 
was, I remember it was really important for me to have people who I felt like, well, at least like I could relate to, like, I don't have chemical sensitivities. I don't have electrical sensitivities. Um, so, but the film to me was about people, you know, whose families kind of were shook by, uh, you know, by suddenly having to drop out from being really sick and that I can relate to. Um, I can relate to, you know, family struggle and, and, um, a matriarch or patriarch in a family sort of having to step away from being a mom or dad, so to speak. So that was kind of how I connected with them. That's on a personal level. I think, I think as a filmmaker, you have to be able to relate to somebody. You have to figure out a way to relate to somebody, um, in order to make a film about them. Otherwise you should, you probably shouldn't. So that, that was my in, so to speak. And that was, um, that's how I chose the people I did in the film. It was, I just could relate to them. The twins, we talked about baseball a lot and country music and, and folk music. Um, you know, Susie, I mean, she just was one of the most kindest, most wonderful saint-like people I've ever met. Um, and she loved talking about traveling and anthropology. Uh, and Joe and the family were also some of the kindest, sweetest people I've ever met. And we also talked a lot about, I learned a lot about baseball on that project. Um, but we talked a lot about baseball and the Royals and basketball and um, human stuff. Uh, and that was really important to me because it'd be really easy to make a film about this topic without any humanity to it. And so that is what I was searching for people who could represent what, how this can affect your life, but who've held on to a part of their humanity that anybody can relate to. You know, Susie once told me that there are two kinds of people. There are people who have the illness and people who become the illness. And I think that's true for, you know, for any kind of disease or malady people get, um, it can really take over your entire psyche, your, your mind, your personality. And I was looking for folks for whom that hadn't happened yet, that they still had, um, a part of their personality, part of their humanity that any of us would be able to relate to on film. You can't make this kind of film without a tremendous amount of compassion. And I'm curious how much of that compassion is innate to you as a human being and how much you had to kind of develop or kind of logically assume to make this film. In my experience with meeting colleagues, I, I think I think if you're a, a nonfiction filmmaker, for the most part, you're you're an you're just naturally an empath. Like you're you're very sensitive. Um, to what other people are experiencing. Um, and that translates into the camera, translates into the editing. That said, you know, traditional verite filmmaking where you're immersed in other people's lives and your life is kind of on hold or at the mercy of their schedule, of their wellness, of their emotional ups and downs. It doesn't challenge your empathy, but it definitely it pushes you, it pushes your heart. I mean, it pushes your ability to, um, you know, tolerate enormous inconveniences. You kind of put yourself things that you would normally call inconveniences in your everyday life. But when you're making a, when you're, you know, when you're witnessing someone's life, when you're documenting someone's life experiences, um, your life becomes secondary for those times. You just kind of forget about 
when you're hungry or when you're tired um, or when you need water or you're just on someone else's rhythm on every level. And that's a muscle that I think gets stronger throughout your career. And the sense of this is my first film and it really was a rite of passage in that way. It, it yeah, it definitely got stronger through the course of that film. Uh, and there was, I should, the subjects were like, they were so kind and so like patient with me also. Like they check on me and be like, are you, are you hungry? Do you need any, you know, that kind of thing. And um, so it goes both ways. It's, it's part of that incredibly intimate relationship that's unique to documentary filmmaking. I don't know a lot of other, um, I don't know of other, a lot of other relationships that you can compare to that. It's really unique. I'm curious before we go too much further, can you provide like a little thumbnail of each family so that, uh, listeners have a kind of a context for each situation? You know, it's about three families and, uh, one of them is, um, uh, Joe and Lainey, uh, they're in Kansas and, uh, they're both young grandparents, uh, when the film was being made and, uh, Joe, um, I catch Joe, I, uh, I, I think it was within I, the first year of him kind of suddenly coming down with uh, very debilitating symptoms and him having to navigate it kind of brand new to the world and figure out, you know, make these really hard choices of how do you, uh, you know, how, how do you, how do you be a husband and a father and a grandfather, um, while also trying to navigate the floor falling out from beneath you for the first time. And then this, another, the other family is, um, are the acres. It's two, uh, identical twins and their mother. Um, and they're all sick and they've been sick for, um, I think, tw uh, like 20 years at that point, um, maybe longer. And their caregiver is um, their grandma, Faye. And uh, Faye, I think, was in her late 80s or early 90s at the time. And she would come and give them, deliver them food and everything. So, and then the final, so it's the, and they're in complete isolation in Arizona. They're, they've made the choice to leave everything that, you know, feels normal for everyone, for, for us, um, to try and see if they could feel better, if they could get better far away. Um, it's sort of them navigating that sort of middle chapter of this. And then Susie's to me was always the other end of the timeline. Um, she's had it for, she's had it for decades and she made the choice long ago to leave, um, San Francisco where she was a student. Um, and now she's, the film documents her contemplation of, uh, returning, um, back to uh, to making a trip for the first time and go to a disability conference in Washington, D.C. And she hadn't made that trip in a really long time and what that reintegration looks like. So it, it bears pointing out that it, with the Akers family, the setting is somewhere in Western Arizona, if I'm correct. And that mm -hmm. environment is almost a character of its own. Yeah, it was near Prescott, uh, Arizona. So yeah, right in the desert. Um, it's funny, it's probably a lot more developed now than it was then, but the desert is absolutely a character. Susie also um, lives in Arizona, and so Arizona, the, the American Southwest in general has a history of being um, a respite for people. I mean, people who had tuberculosis fled to the desert because the air is so clean there and there's no humidity, so there's no chance of you know mold, There's there are less pollens floating around, there's just less things to 
irritate you if you have some kind of, uh, of illness. What's the thinking? It's clean, high altitude air. Um, so historically, it always kind of had a place for people um, having to leave society for whatever reason. Even culturally speaking, I think the American West was historically um, for Americans a place where you fled um, and you know you didn't fit in religiously like the Mormons. You fled West um, and started something new. Um, like I said, tuberculosis patients, like you just, it wasn't working for you health wise in the East where the people, where everyone was. So you fled West. And so on some level, these folks were following a tradition of people who fled West in order to, um, fit in better, or in their case to try and feel better. So the desert is very much a character. Let me jump into the, the part that I'm maybe emotionally most drawn to, which is just the trust that a filmmaker would need to develop to make a film as good as this. Obviously you don't show up on their front porch with a camera, say, hi, I'm Drew, and then hit record. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about the warming up process? How long did you spend with them before you even brought the camera out of your bag? What I learned on this film, I've used on everything I've done since then. Um, because they are so vulnerable on so many levels to someone from the outside coming in, not just as a storyteller on, on every level. So, you know, I had to, um, for example, I had to bring, you know, some, some of them would offer me clothes. Like they had a, a stash, like a bin of like clean clothes that had no fragrances whatsoever on them. They knew that those clothes were good. Uh, it wouldn't bother them. And so if a visitor arrived, um, or in my case, when I arrived, um, the first thing I would do is change clothes. They just hand me the clothes they'd like me to wear and I would swap out and those would be the work clothes. Eventually I had my own pair of work clothes. Um, I think they were really, really, really old hospital scrubs that my landlord, I think my landlord gave them to me. She, um, had been a surgeon in another life and, um, I just had cleaned them the way they asked me to. I, I, I boiled the clothes and then, um, hand washed them in baking soda. Um, on top of them being old was important that they, they've kind of had time to sort of, uh, you know, not have any fragrances on them for, from years of use and, uh, and washing. So, you know, I only use that example just to say like how, uh, how vulnerable these people are much more so than the typical subject of a documentary. So yeah, I didn't just show up with the camera. And in fact, even when I did, it was very cautious after I got to know, I got to know them. Um, how are you feeling? Are you, is this bothering you? Sometimes it would bother them. Sometimes it wouldn't, it would vary. Um, so always sort of taking the temperature of how people felt. Um, in terms of the initial, the way you initially approach somebody, I think you get what you give. I mean, that's uh, true for life, but it's, it's true in filmmaking also. You know, you have to, I know that eventually if they sign up to go on this journey with me, it's going to be very vulnerable. I'm, I'm going to, you know, find out about all kinds of, you know, parts of their life and their personality and their history. And so they kind of need to know that about me too. And I was kind of alluding to that earlier that a lot of the conversations we would have um, had nothing to do with their malady, had nothing to do with the, you know, what the film was interested in. It was just us getting to know each other. Um, 
they'd ask me about, you know, um, my family, my background, um, what kind of music I like books. And we would keep, and we would keep in touch and talk about those things frequently. Um, and the point of that is, so they know, um, I don't know, like even with two friends, like you're not going to have a very intimate conversation with someone that you're trying to get to know until they know you, like you just kind of get to know each other. So you know how to react. So you know how to contextualize questions or conversations you're having with that person because you're getting to know their background. So, you know, the, the film is, or I think the films that I make in general are you're seeing with my eyes, my experiences I have with people. Um, it's very much, very much a witnessing, right? I really want it to be. Um, so yeah, you don't go in like cameras blazing, you know, shooting something and reminding people like, Hey, don't pretend I'm not here. Pretend I'm not here. It's, it's not trying to be a fly on the wall where people don't know you're there or forget that you're there. I think it's more of, they trust you so much that they don't mind you being there when they're saying certain things or doing certain things. They don't feel intimidated by that. So would you say that the the relationship that you wind up having, is it a friendship or is it just friendly? It's a friendship. It's complicated. It's, it's friendship is a layer to it. Absolutely. It's a layer to it. Um, but it's complicated because there is, it's a friendship and it's also a collaboration. Like you're making, to me, you're making art. That's what I consider what I make. I think it's art. I don't consider it journalism. I, I think that's a different, a different school of rule, a different set of rules, a different sort of school of thought, a different approach to documentary. Um, I think it's art. I think it's an expression of someone's experience. And so to me, to do that, it's a collaboration. It's, it's what I see and what I witness and what I'm, um, what's resonating with me because I'm the filmmaker, I'm editing, you know, I'm filming all those kinds of things. Um, but it's also their experience, obviously it's their lives, it's their story. And where those two overlap is the film. And, and, and that's why you have to be able to relate to those people, um, to whoever your subject is. A friendship can also have its own baggage, right? Then you're inviting somebody a little bit into your process and maybe even into your film. I'm guessing there has to be some sort of boundary there to make sure that the film still has integrity. Yeah, it's a really interesting topic and I'm still learning about it and still navigating it because um, it's the relationship evolves, right? Like it begins uh, with, it can be very asymmetric. I mean, by definition, it's usually very asymmetrical. Like um, in some ways it's an, into it can be an, an intoxicating relationship for um, a subject because I don't know, you come across somebody and they're, they couldn't be more curious about every aspect of the thing that is either most important to your life or that you're the most passionate about and they can't get enough of it. They just want to learn more and more and more. And they just sit there and they listen to every word you say. And um, that's a wonderful thing to experience as a person. Like we don't often come across great listeners in our day-to-day -day life who are fascinated by all the intricacies by all the nuances of the things that we love. Um, so it's a very intoxicating relationship and it's real. Um, I don't choose to spend four or five years with people 
who are doing things that I'm not super interested. I'm obsessed with what they're with, with what they're obsessed with. So that's so the friendship part is it evolves. So anyway, you make the film um, and then you're done filming, right? Uh, you switch to editing and all of a sudden communication just naturally drops off a little bit because, well, you're not trying to organize shoots with them. You're not visiting them, um, you know, once every month or whatever it is for the project, but you're keeping in touch obviously and keeping them, you know, up to speed with what's happening, maybe asking them questions to clarify certain things. So you have, so you have the right story, so to speak. And then the film comes out. And that is the scariest part of the process. Um, having to show it to them for the first time and hoping that, you know, to me, the, all I'm looking for is for them to watch it and say, yeah, I, I think that's about right. That's, that's kind that that's how it happened. Yeah. That's, that's, that's true. That is my experience. That's all I need. And if they feel really strongly, otherwise, then I, it just, you have to change it. Like it can't come out in that way. Um, so it's really nerve wracking. And so all of a sudden you have a premiere and maybe you have distribution. Um, and that enters a whole other world that you're navigating with. And suddenly you're, you know, holding their hands through a process of their story coming out into the world for the first time and their story being available to anybody who watches it to criticize it, to say whatever they want um, as a comment um, and helping them navigate, you know, suddenly being a, some kind of a public figure um, and how to take, you know, how to take that. The sensitives was much, it was, a, that's a, it was a softer landing in that sense because with the exception of Joe and Lainey, um, they, they don't, they naturally don't have a lot of exposure. Like they're not gonna, they don't have the internet. They don't have computers. So they're not really, they do. Susie has a computer, but they don't, they're not like online looking for comments on, uh, you know, YouTube or the trailer to see like what people think they're naturally isolated. So they're, they're naturally kind of insulated from a lot of the, um, a lot of the, you know, feedback you can get from the public from a film coming out. So that was a little bit, you know, a little bit easier. Um, but so the, the, the friendship evolves depending on what stage of the filmmaking you're in and it's, you know, and then the film's done and it's out and it's been out for a little bit and you you're moving on to another project. And that to me is where it tapers off, at least in my experience, it tapers off into a more, a much more normal kind of friendship where you're, you're kind of closing the doors to like filmmaker subject relationship and you're keeping in touch with someone that you shared a really important experience with the process of making a film and witnessing their life. You're closing that door and you're sort of keeping in touch with them because of this incredible experience you had together. And yeah, so that, that's been my experience with it. It's, uh, it's really complicated. So I imagine that this is not something that gets taught in film school, this idea that when the camera gets turned off for the final time and you go into editing, you're making a transition from a filmmaker to a human being. And from that point forward, to your point with premieres and publicity and exposure to the outside world, that you're kind of the chaperone. And I don't know if you had help, but did you find yourself just 
kind of leaning on your base human instincts about how to handle that whole process? Yeah. And I did have help. Um, my producer, uh, the producer for that film, David Hartstein was a, a huge help and, and, uh, um, with navigating, like making sure every, just making sure people are comfortable, but I'm, but I'm the front line. Like I'm, I'm the first person. Like I'm, I don't, so I don't shoot with a crew. I, I shoot solo. Um, for this film, it was necessary. Um, but I kind of have carried it on to, uh, my work since then because I just got used to it. So I don't, there's no sound person. There's no producer in the field. Um, you know, so for the sensitives, it was four years, I think of shooting, um, and I'm the only person they're talking to, you know, connecting with, you know, so I'm, I'm still the go-to for them in terms of, um, you know, yeah, chaperoning them through that, through that process. Um, and it is really, it's really scary. You know, you still, you, you want them, you know, you make a, you make a film. There's a lot of reasons why you can make a film, but i I know I would always ask the subject, like, why do you want to, why are you actually doing this? Like, why do you, why are you agreeing to do this? Why are you letting me film this stuff? You know, I'm going to make a movie, right? We're going to make a movie. We're going to make a film about this. We, hopefully this goes and, and a lot of people get to see it. So why would you ever sign up to do this? And with the sensitives, everyone said pretty much a similar thing, which was, I want people who are in a similar situation as me to be able to see this and not feel so lonely in the experience. So that's why I essentially was, I was wanting people who also, you know, don't have the condition who, for whom this is new to be able to ask questions about, you know, why, why do we allow people to fall through the cracks like that? You know, in a time where we celebrate our technology and, wealth um that we have you know so much like how are we still allowing this to happen people to fall through the cracks to expand people's empathy so these are the intentions this is why they signed up for it this is why i'm doing it and you know you're putting a film out there and you're gonna you're gonna get you know people saying really insensitive or sometimes really mean things no matter what the film is about and that's, you know, not fun for the filmmaker either, but for the subject, it's a totally different thing. And that's, that to me is always the hardest part to kind of um, guide them through of how to navigate that kind of, that kind of noise that shouldn't really be relevant to them. So you mentioned being a one-man crew, and I'm really fascinated by this. Can you talk a little bit about how this may have been a different shoot for you, given the the extraordinary circumstances in which you were shooting, I'm guessing you weren't putting love mics on these subjects. Was it like a long shotgun? Tell me a little bit about just acquiring the footage you did. Yeah. Um, because of the subject matter and the limits of, of, you know, what, what, what they were comfortable with. Um, there's no wireless lobs on this at all. Um, all of the sound of the sensitives was gathered by a single um, shotgun mic that was um, on my camera. The sound people are going to cringe when they hear this, but I just flipped it to auto uh, um, auto on the camera for uh, auto leveling and just hoped it all worked out. Um, and it did. And I should, there's a huge asterisk by the way, to like this method, which is um, I'm shooting most like 90% of the film 
maybe 95% of the film takes place in basically a giant soundstage. Like it's the desert and they're so remote and far away from people. You can hear someone talking at a normal volume from like half a mile away. Like it's, it's so ideal for sound in that way. So I, I think that's why I could get away with it. It's naturally quiet environment. It's great for sound. There's no, there's not a lot of um, uh, noise um, in their environment. So that that was my workflow for this. Uh, for the record, for all the sound people, I've, I'm, I am using wireless mics now, and uh, <laughs> I think I've gotten better at that. So what about your lens selection? So focal length could go a long way to kind of setting a, a visual mood of isolation, or were you working with zooms? Like, how did you think about the visual treatment? Yeah, I was... It's funny to think back about, I mean, it's, it's just changed so much since I, um, since I made that film, just what lenses you could use, what were available, what was, you know, how cheap everything was or wasn't. Um, I use these old, I think they're from the eighties or the nineties, um, photo, like photo zoom lenses. Uh, they're not really, there's nothing sexy about them. Like they're not like fast lenses. They're not, but I, I chose them because I liked that they had a lot of um, character to them. There's a photographer, um, an experimental photographer named Aaron Rose that I recently kind of gotten obsessed with. And he, uh, he's just such an outlier. He didn't show work anywhere for his entire, almost his entire life until he's in his seventies. And he showed at the Whitney in New York and, um, everyone was kind of blown away at what he was doing in isolation, uh, came up with his own processes for, um, chemical pro everything. And he said, he was talking about lenses in an interview. And he said that, you know, the interesting thing about older lenses, like today lenses are designed to, you know, when you point them at like a square drawn on a piece of paper, they use all these different focal lengths. And, and the idea is that all the corners of the square are sharp, just like, you know, some, you know, a, a mark in the middle of the square would be sharp and that the lines of the square are perfectly straight. There's no like, warping. They, they try to minimize that. And he said, but old lenses... There, it had a very different intention when they made old lenses, they had a purpose to them, like to make people look better. Um, so they intentionally made them less sharp, um, to be able to, to smooth out skin because they were, you know, for portraiture or whatever. And, and that's what I was super interested in with these older lenses, which was the character they bring to them. Um, especially in like the earlier time of digital, um, of digital, uh, you know, filmmaking and cameras and stuff, they, they felt really sterile to me. And so I wanted to bring some kind of, you know, feeling and character to him. So anyway, I chose that lens. I tried a few out and I loved it because it felt really, it felt really warm to me. Um, there was a texture to it and, and a warmth to it. And I like it. I like when the corners of the frame are not as sharp as the center because it, it to me, that's how it feels. Like my attention is toward the center. My attention is that's how I film. That's how I point the camera. So it was conducive for my, for my process. So, um, and also it was really practical. They were really cheap. I got them on eBay for like $50 and, uh, I think I got two of them in case I dropped one. Um, and always had it sort of in my bag, but otherwise, uh, yeah, it was a zoom as a, I think it was like a 28 to 70 or something. Um, nothing, nothing that great, but, uh, it worked really well in terms of the focal length uh, choices. In the film, a lot of things are shot. Um, I think it, it, I don't think I got wider than a 
40 millimeters for most of it. I think I, I was, I was really tight in on, on faces and, and people, and that's my natural proclivity. I, I, I don't know. I like seeing details. I like seeing people's eyes and mouths and nose and, and in close up. I want to see those. I like seeing those micro expressions. I like seeing their gestures. I like seeing the details of their clothes. All those things are so rich to me. I don't know. That's more telling about someone than anything they could confess to you. You know, it's, it's, it's how they present themselves. It's how they've, how the world has weathered them. So there's one scene I want to ask you about, because I, I think it's a brilliant, brilliant scene. It's the scene where Delaney Hall from 99% Invisible shows up to do a radio interview. And you get this two for one, one of you get to see this interaction. What does a visitor go through in the home of a multiple chemical sensitivity sufferer? But also you get to piggyback on her interview to kind of advance the narrative I'm curious, was that kind of found footage, so to speak, or was that something that you kind of said, all right, this is going to be good. I'm going to, I'm going to be there and ready for this. So Susie was kind of a spokesperson for that community. She gets a lot of PR calls, like her, you know, her voice, like while Delaney was there and I was filming Delaney interview Susie, like the interview would be interrupted because someone at BBC was calling Susie to see if she'd, you know, want to be part of this or that. Um, you know, special that they're doing about, uh, whatever their theme was. Um, and at this point, Susie and I kind of had an agreement that if she, while we're doing this, that she would kind of let me know, at least like she could do whatever she wanted. Obviously she could interview with anybody she wished, but she'd kind of keep me abreast about like who's approaching her and this and that. And eventually we became so close that she would kind of ask me to what my opinion was like, was this person going to throw her and her community under the bus was a kind of a parachute journalism piece that, uh, you know, was just kind of trying to show the spectacle of it rather than, um, the humanity of it. So she, um, she was contacted by Delaney and Susie said, Hey, this person from radio, can, do you mind talking to them? I think she may have told Delaney actually that she should call me and talk to me as well. Um, so Delaney, and I got on the phone and I got really, really great, um, a really great impression from her. And I, I thought what she was doing was, it sounded like it was, you know, going to be really, you know, nice and, um, empathetic. And she was interested in like the, the deeper story. And, and then I asked her, I said, well, can I film you doing the interview? And I remember her being a little take, I don't think she'd been on camera before. Um, and I would have the same reaction. Like I've never, been asked to be like, you know, a scene of me doing something naturally to be filmed. Um, I would feel weird about that. And she felt weird about it. But eventually, we sort of said, you know, she said, that'd be okay. And what's wonderful for me, that scene is really important, because it shows by proxy, it, it helps answer like kind of the question of the elephant in the room, which is how am I doing this? And so here's an outsider who's a storyteller. And you see her go through um you know, the trial and error of like making this work for Susie and making it comfortable for her. Um, and I went through a very similar process. So there was that. And then, yeah, also the, I knew she was going to ask fundamental questions about Susie's background that for me would lend to this very naturalistic, it still holds the verite, um, you know, not breaking a fourth wall line of Susie, you know, answering, 
you know, uh, questions about her past and how this came to be and all that. So it was a total gift um, when Delaney showed up, uh, an absolute gift. And she's, yeah, she was really, really, really generous and and wonderful to work with. Yeah, I can't help but think that it's a filmmaker's scene, that a filmmaker would watch that scene and go, this is perfect. Everything about this scene is just perfect. It was a gift, yeah. So if I can ask you about the, the taking the camera from the inside of the house to the outside, you did a, a marvelous job of kind of capturing the little bit of the windswept, isolated, stark environment in which I believe the Akers family lived and maybe mm -hmm. a little bit of Susie as well. Tell me about your approach to getting that sort of environmental footage. Was that something you did at the end? Did you do it as you went along? And what were you trying to communicate there? Uh, you know, sometimes there'd be downtime and it was clear that with the Akers, I'd, I'd be there for, I'd usually be there, I think, for at least two or three days and then sometimes upward of like a week. And I would camp on their, on their property. Um, I'd, I'd car camp, I'd have a tent, I'd, I'd pop up behind my car and that would, you know, be where I'd operate. So, so I just wanted to be there and see all the cycles of their day-to-day -day life, the re the repetitive, all of it, the small things that we take for granted of how they go about it, how they do it. And when you're, when you're in a place like that, and when there's so much repetition, you start to me, that's where you really start seeing things clearly, like things that you could, you would take for granted off, you know, with a first glance that you're, you're seeing details that you're like, Oh, wow, there's, there's, that really reveals feeling of, of how they're, of how they're living their, of their life. So I actually got obsessed with their laundry line. Um, while being there, there's a lot of shots of their laundry line. And in particular, there's a black plastic bag that they hang from their laundry line. And there's something so stark about that image um, and the clothes that would kind of, you know, be there and then not be there, how windy it was. It just was, uh, it became a, for me, a barometer of mood in the edit. Um, when you see that laundry line and it's really being violently shook by high winds, I think that's, those are in moments where uh, it sort of, in, it, it indicates the storm, right? The calm before the storm, the storm itself um, the calm after the storm passes, the storm of, of the story of, you know, of, of their story in the film. The bag itself became like something I was also kind of obsessed with. Uh, we talked about in the edit a lot, which was, you know, it's kind of intact, I think, at the beginning. And by the end, it's, I think, yeah, toward the end of the film, it's in tatters. Um, I think there's a literal storm brewing that I film at one point um, from a high point, from a, I, uh, hiked up a mountain that was near them to sort of capture this larger scene of just to show you how isolated they are, um, in their environment, in their environment. And it so happened that there were storms coming in that day. So I was just up there filming these, um, storms where the clouds look like they're about to touch down on the ground. It was, it was, you know, really dramatic. So yeah, to me, it, it was very much in the edit. It was used as a sort of, you know, as indicators there, I mean, they are by definition just, you know, um, completely vulnerable to their environment in ways that most of us aren't. And so it made sense that the environment itself would be in some ways a foil to what was happening to them personally throughout the film. Um, so that's kind of how I was thinking about it when we were shooting um, and also uh, in the edit. I find it fascinating the, the invisible role that time plays in a documentary. 
I think the casual viewer may not be calculating in their mind how much time is passing, but for me, and I think for any filmmaker, you get the sense that months and years are passing and it really does change the, the feel. Like, Cause I, I feel like if this were done as a news story, you, you would just feel the compression of time in a way that mm -hmm. subtracts from the story. When you started out, did you have a sense of how long and how much you needed to shoot uh, in each location? And how did that play out relative to what actually happened? Uh, no, I had no sense of what would happen or how long anything would take. Uh, this was, I mean, this was my rite of passage as a filmmaker. I, I was just following my gut. There gets to be a certain point where you're in the middle of it. You filmed a lot, but you don't know what the story is. And then there's this terrifying thought that occurs to you. Like, what if there is, oh my God, what if there is no story? Uh, what if this is, you've just done a portrait and, and there's nothing that really changes or, or, ha or, ha you know, so to speak, like changes throughout this film. And, um, and then it's a game of time. And then you're sort of, that's when you're really asking, you know, what are your plan? What are your intentions? What are you planning to do? What is your, you know, next few months? And that's when it started to reveal itself after I kind of felt like I documented the essence of now, then the question was, is there something happening in your life or about to happen that, um, you know, would bring out more color, I guess, to the story that would flesh out more dimensions, more complexities to what's happening. So with the twins in Arizona, that became obvious because they were looking for somewhere to go, um, that search in there. So there's this perpet there's this perpetual sort of wait for, are you guys going to hop, you know, are you guys going to hop in the van next week? Oh no, next month. Okay. No, oh, not yet. Oh, you know, it was like, it was almost always going to happen kind of thing. Um, and so that was, so that was pretty clear for a story, from a story point of view, Joe and Laney were also really clear from a story point of view. They, um, he was searching for solutions. He was going to move to Texas, um, to the special facility where he was going to hope to get better. Um, and, you know, the tension there with his wife, Lainey, sort of not being sure if that was actually going to be the right move. Um, Susie, for a very long time, I didn't know if I was capturing anything more than a portrait. And the the thing, you know, what was tough about that was here are these other two stories that have clear, you know, arcs to them. Um, but there's this one that I was so drawn to and I, and I, I didn't know what to do. And I went to a colleague of mine, a mentor, another filmmaker, PJ Raval, great filmmaker. And I asked him about that and he talked about one of his films. Um, and he said, you know, you know, there's this one character and it's like the main character of his film. It's the most riveting character, charming character in this film. And a lot happens to him. And I remember PJ telling me there was a long time where I had no idea if anything was going to you know, change in his life. I didn't know anything was going to happen. I thought I was just capturing a portrait. And I said, well, why did you keep filming? You know, how did you choose to keep filming with him and, and, and wait for things? He said, I just liked him. I liked being around him. I liked filming with him. And I felt the same way with Susie. And he said, trust that. Just trust that. If you like them, if you like being around them, just keep filming with them. Life is like, Life is change. Life is repetition, but life is also change. It's something will happen. Something will reveal itself to you. So it was just a patience game. Um, 
And yeah, and of course, you know, it's that is not a solo part of the project. Um, David, the producer, and um, David Hartstein, the producer, and David Fabello, the editor, um, were you know were huge and instrumental in helping navigate the stories, so to speak, to to you know to turn into a film, which is such a it's not such a strange thing. Like life is not a straightforward you know three act play or five act play it's it's really complicated nuanced and and the act of turning it into you know into a story into a into a memory like that where it makes sense to us where we can kind of digest it and parse things is is really it's really incredible so i'm curious again this is more logistical but i think this kind of stuff is fascinating how many not hours of footage, but I would also like to know that, but how many hours do you think you spent in each location and over what span of time? I mean, I spent, I think it was roughly four years of being on call and filming with everybody. And probably of those four years, three of those years were like every month I'd, I'd probably go out for like a week or two and there'd be the circuit. So at the time I was living in Austin, Texas and Susie and the, and the twins were living in Arizona and Joe and Lainey are in Kansas. So I do this circuit where I drive, I had to drive, right? Like I couldn't fly. I couldn't get on a plane. It would just it would sort of uh, dirty up the clothes, so to speak. And, and so I had, I had this old Honda that they all kind of um, gave me the thumbs up on. Like they didn't, didn't bug them. Um, no funny fragrances or anything from it. I drove that from Austin uh, two days driving to Arizona and I'd stop and see Susie and be with her for a certain amount of time. If something was, um, if I knew something was happening, there was like an event that I really wanted, um, you know, someone coming to visit her or something. Um, I'd plan out a longer trip for her, but I usually was at least dipping in for a day or two. I'd go see the twins and same kind of thing, depending on what was happening in their life. And then I drive over to Kansas and then back to, you know, back to Austin. So I would do that like once every month or once every two months for three years. Um, I couldn't give you a number in hours, but definitely like months, like cumulatively like months with everybody um, over the spread over the course of three or four years. You know, there's a larger discussion in documentary that I think is interesting and which is about, you know, the aesthetics of documentary and the the money that is now in documentary that that is pretty recent. Um, and in terms of, you know, what documentaries are being bought for and, and where they're being distributed and, and the new sort of um, demand for them um, by the public. And, you know, with that comes a certain pressure to then, uh, you know, for documentary to become, uh, I don't know, a little more entertaining, so to speak, right? There's, it's, I think that's naturally where these economic pressures kind of push any kind of medium, like a little bit more into an entertainment realm um, and also to kind of lower the cost of things and, and all that, it becomes a little more commercialized, a little more, you know, a friend of mine called it the studiofication of documentary. And with that, it's very tempting to start constructing a little bit more um, to go searching for something that you're, that you have in your head, so to speak, you know, you'll find what you're looking for. And, this kind of filmmaking, the reason why it's hard for me to add up hours or to think back of sort of what my expectations were um, is because that approach, and I have to, you know, thank the mentors that from San Francisco, you know, Les Blank and Maureen Gosling, Emiko Mori and Jed Wright, like all these 
San Francisco, these sort of uh, righteous filmmakers that were going after this, you know, this tradition of verite, um, you're witnessing. You're you're completely at the you know um, at the mercy of someone else's life, and you're witnessing. And um, as uh, as the producer of Sensitive David used to tell me, you know, you're not there you're, when you're in the field. You're not there to judge. You're not judging in, in the field. You're just witnessing. You're you're that's all you are, and you're recording. That takes time. That takes patience, and it's there's enormous risk, and it's terrifying. There's so many moments where you're out there in the deep waters of you know, someone else's life. And you're just like, what am I doing? Like, what am I, what am I filming? This is, you know, it's bewildering. It's, it's really crazy to navigate. And that feeling comes from not only the amount of time you're putting in, but just, it's the uncertainty. You don't know. There's, there's no like guaranteed end point. You don't know when it's going to be finished. Um, You don't know when sort of there's enough there for you to create something that people can understand and relate to. And it's really, really scary. Um, uh, to do it that way. So I think it's a, I should say there's a lot of pressure, I think on filmmakers to, you know, go in different directions than that. But I, I think it's, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of a pure, I just think it's just such a, it's like one of the most beautiful forms of documentary where you're, you're really just waiting and seeing what happens. And if you're trying to construct, construct something, then you're not going to witness anything. You're, you're not going to be patient enough to see what happens naturally. You're kind of affecting things a little bit too much. Well, I was actually hanging on every word because to me, that's kind of the essence of what interests me. And I'm trying to bring to this listening audience is this idea that documentary filmmaking, there's way more than you could ever imagine being invested in this enterprise. And I, I don't think people think in terms of years and years and months and all the, you, you basically gave half of a car to this film. If my rough math <laughs> is correct. Yeah. Uh, that's a, and I'm, an enormous personal investment. And I'm guessing if you're like a lot of the filmmakers I talked to, this was done with the producer named as Visa or MasterCard. Uh, <laughs> there's a, a tremendous financial risk you have to take as well. So I don't, I don't yeah. know if that's something you can address in this case, because I think this is relatively early in your career. Like how did you, how did you handle the financial aspects of getting this done? Yeah. Um, uh, I was, very fortunate because I was also, I was, I started the sensitives right as I was finishing grad school. So I was free of any obligations there, but I was also very fortunate. I was uh, freelancing as a cinematographer and it's very, very, very conducive to um, being on call for, for a Verite project because well, a, you own all your gear. I own my own camera. I own, you know, well, at the time, one mic. And so there's no like rental. There's no, you know, you're not hiring crew. I don't have to coordinate with a sound person or, or a DP to kind of like make a shoot happen. I was a completely self-contained unit. And the other thing that's fortunate about freelancing as a cinematographer um, is that your schedule is really flexible. Like you can work two weeks on a show or a commercial um, and then not have to work for a month. And so I essentially didn't have savings for four years. I just put everything, um, all the money I made from those freelance jobs, um, I put into the sensitives, um, and, and, you know, I was lucky that to where that worked, I didn't go into debt for it. Um, but I also, uh, 
well, I maintained debt. I should put it that way. I didn't go into further debt making the film, but uh, I just kind of broke even every year and put every penny I earned into it. Um, you know, there's another sacrifice too that's that's not talked about a lot, which is there's you know huge personal sacrifice that goes with it also. Um, very, it's very, very, very hard to have any kind of you know meaningful relationship with somebody, um, and that being romantic or even on a friend you know friendship le- uh, level, because you're just you're gone all the time. You're obsessing over this thing. You're um, and you're, like I said earlier, you're not really thinking about yourself a lot you're um and this is not me playing a violin i think i'm just this is just the reality of it this has been my experiences um yeah you just you're just not thinking about yourself in the way that you would in any other circumstance you're you're really giving yourself up to uh like my you lose weight i don't know it's strange like you don't eat in the same way your metabolism changes um but you're also in this incredible like zone of clarity also like it's very humbling it's kind of the act of being extremely humble for periods of time um and it's it's clarifying it's wonderful i have very blissful moments of not having a camera and not being um not talking to you know anybody i'm filming either and just kind of walking around the desert and thinking about the film and then uh just i don't know there's a clarity to it that's wonderful but it's very uh you know there's a lot of sacrifice financial and personal that goes with this kind of filmmaking what you're describing almost sounds monastic and i mean that in the best possible sense of the word that it seems a little bit like a combination between a calling and a state of mind when you were going through film school did you have this sort of vision this would be what it would be like? I didn't have a vision for it, but I do think it prepared me for it. Um, I, because the act of making a feature, a feature verite in particular, um, like other kinds of documentary, you're, you're super committed to, like there's, it's taking over your entire life as well. Um, but it's a different thing to, be sleeping in a tent on someone, you know, in someone's driveway for a week, every like two months, you know, um, for, for three and a half for four years. Um, it's, it's, it's just a different level of immersion, um, that takes you out of everything that makes you, you essentially, which saying this out loud is kind of analogous to what happened to the subjects of the sensitives. Like they, not out of choice, but they, you know, part of their story is that they were either contemplate leaving everything that made them, them, you know, their identity, or they already had. And it was like, how does that change you? So, you know, in that way, it kind of, you know, I, I think that all, you know, what is it? Um, all art is self-portraiture. And I think for me, my, my experience, I, I think I, that, that is truth to me. I, 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 it's all self-exploration on some level. I don't, I think it'd be really hard to sustain, um, for, for as a career, but even for a single project that takes, you know, five or six years total to finish, it's all self-exploration. So, you know, so it's not surprising, like, even as I'm talking to you and kind of, um, realizing like, oh yeah, there's a connection between how, you know, you leave all this behind in order to make a film and put yourself aside that there's a parallel there with, 
with the subjects, the story of the subjects of the sensitives. So I'm curious, because as a viewer, there are some achingly sad moments in the film that if you're a human being, they they can't not penetrate you emotionally. I'm I'm curious, through all these visits over the months and years, did you ever find yourself getting pulled maybe uncomfortably into this sometimes sad existence? Like, how did you cope with the mental and emotional aspect of making the film? Yeah, you, I mean, you definitely get really attached. You know, I was, my one of my greatest fears in that film was, uh, I was really terrified I was going to make a film where Joe would leave his family and completely disappear and, and not be able to be a, a, a husband or a father or grandfather anymore. I really didn't want to make that film, but you know, you're along once you start your, you know, that's something that could have happened. Um, so, you know, I'm behind the camera, I'm neutral, but I'm kind of, I'm rooting, I'm rooting for everybody to do okay. I'm rooting for everybody to not, you know, completely unravel. And on the sidelines too, where the camera's turned off, like they're, it's not like I'm a, you know, totally neutral party where I'm off to the side and I don't like interact with them. Like there are a lot of moments where, um, you know, Lainey, Joe's uh, wife and I would talk camera off about her experience because, um, in fact, I remember there was a time where I hadn't filmed with them for a while. I think I'd started editing and I went and filmed with them. It was a, it was a pickup shoot. It was a really wonderful three days we spent together. Um, Joe had kind of had recovered um, by that point. And so that's kind of what I was filming was his recovery and how, you know, how different it looked with him interacting with his family and how different he looked. He, he looked a lot healthier. Um, and on my drive back home, I got a text from Lainey, you know, expressing how she'd missed. She didn't realize until I'd returned, like how important it was for her for me to be around and to help her process a lot of the things that were happening to her during that really, really dark time, um, for four years. And that, you know, she couldn't really talk to her friends about it because a lot of them maybe weren't sympathetic to what was going on or, or, or she didn't want to burden them or, you know, she can't talk to her kids about it because it's a different dynamic also. And so it's weird as a filmmaker, you, you fill a niche in for folks that, it's cathartic. I mean, I, honestly, I think if the process works and you're being an honest and truthful and empathetic filmmaker, um, it's, it should be cathartic for the people who are in it. So as a filmmaker, how do you manage the tension of when to turn the camera off and when to turn it back on? Because this is a long haul. It's three years, dozens of visits, I would imagine. And you're having to make constant decisions about I'm turning the camera on for this, or I think maybe this time I just need to be present. Like I, I imagine that was a learning process. And can you tell me more about that part? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, I, I think it's got, it's, it's, it's your instinct. Like, and, and it starts getting sharper and sharper the longer you do it and the longer you're with people um, in, in the film. I also, I do this with every project. I, I always say with people who I'm filming with for the first time that, um, you know, even though I'm holding the camera, um, you also have control over what's recorded and not recorded. Like even after we're done recording something, like if you are looking back on something and you feel really uncomfortable about what was recorded, 
the line is always open. Like, let's always talk about that. Or if there's something happening and you feel incredibly uncomfortable that I'm recording something, just tell me to stop and I'll stop. For me, it's very collaborative. And that's conducive for the kind of filmmaking I like doing. Like Errol Morris could never do that. Um, he has a different kind of social contract with his subjects because of his style of filmmaking. So it becomes a gut instinct of kind of what feels appropriate, what doesn't feel appropriate. In the end, I think it's maintaining their dignity. There's just certain things you, um, certain moments where you're like, you know, I think I think I have enough, or this isn't something that the world needs to see necessarily. This isn't this isn't bringing any more depth or nuance or dimension to the person. This is just a moment that they should have to themselves. I mean, the first time I learned that um, was on a, it's a short film that I was the DP on. Uh, it's called Vultures of Tibet. Um, it was a Nat Geo short that um, uh, my friend Rose Bush directed. And it, it was about uh, Tibetan sky burials. Um, anyway, there's this moment where um, a sky burial is, is, a, is a traditional Tibetan funeral where um, the deceased are ceremoniously um, the bodies of the deceased are ceremoniously fed to griffin vultures and there's like dozens of them. And I remember we filmed a funeral for the first time. We talked to the family, we talked to the monks and everything. We got everyone's okay for this. And there's this moment where I was filming some part of the ritual. And I remember I couldn't look at the viewfinder and I was recording and it occurred to me that if I can't, if I can't even look at this through the viewfinder and here I am, why would anybody want to watch this, um, you know, on, on their, on their screens? So I stopped recording and it was kind of a, that was the first sort of moment where I realized you need to follow your instinct and follow your gut. It'll tell you, um, that's the only thing you have to sort of know what is appropriate or not appropriate. So this investment that you made over the course of three years really pays off in the end in many ways, of course, but specifically when Joe and Lainey hit a uh, inflection point in their relationship, because there's been a lot of tension there. Lainey doesn't feel like she's being seen or being appreciated. And you capture one of the more authentic moments I've seen in a documentary in a long time. Tell me about that, that argument and why you think that was able to happen in front of a camera. Yeah. Um, it's funny. The first time we did a test screening of that scene. Um, I remember one of our, uh, a colleague was there at, the, at this test screening and and he's from not Kansas, but like Missouri, I think he's from Missouri. And he just like, he said, I gotta tell you, man, that scene with Joe and Laney, you just captured the classic Midwestern fight perfectly. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, that's a Midwestern fight. It's like, they didn't say anything, but they were saying everything at the same time. Uh, and it's true. I, I do actually think that that moment between them was, uh, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of communication. So, I mean, fortunately I, at that point I'd been filming with them for years. So I knew them very well. They knew me very well. We've become very close. Um, not only that, but like as a filmmaker and, and as a cinematographer where it's handheld and, um, I, I, I've kind of internalized their, their, their body signals. Um, it's really, it's hard to articulate, but you know, when you get used to somebody, you kind of know 
I don't know, you just subconsciously kind of take in like, you know, how their hands move or, or their facial gestures or their body movement. Um, and you can kind of anticipate things a little bit. So all those things came, came together, you know, for that scene to be possible. Lainey told me after that scene that um, she had never in there, I think how many decades they've been married. They've been married a long time. They were like high school sweethearts. Um, they'd never had a fight like that. Like nothing even close to that. So it was really vulnerable, like really, really vulnerable. And, um, and she, so, I, but the only reason it was possible was because she, she trusted me. She trusted me and she trusted my intentions. Um, so that's why it was even possible to be filmed. Leading up to that scene, you know, we were all in Texas together. Um, I had been watching them navigate, uh, Lainey Joe and their, and their daughter. I've been, you know, watching them navigate all this and filming it and sometimes not filming it. And, and those moments where you're not filming are so important, um, in filmmaking. Um, and that's kind of, kind of getting back to the question you were asking earlier, like, how do you know when to shoot or not shoot? Um, it's really hard because your initial instinct, especially I think if you're, you're sort of a younger filmmaker, your initial instinct is like, I need to film everything, like everything, like it all has to be documented. But on a longer form project, I think you start to realize that um, turning the camera off can be better for the film. What you do when the camera's off, I should say, um, can be just as profound for the film as when you, you know, as when you're rolling and there's just, so there were moments where we were talking through this and Lainey would have like a sides with me about how she was feeling about Joe and what, you know, worrying about what his decision was going to be. Was he going to stay or not stay and how she felt about the place and if that was a healthy place for him to be and also how she felt um, about her role in this and, you know, how appreciated her role was. So we talked about it on the side, just to, people that care about each other. Um, I cared about what happened to her. I cared about what happened to her husband and her family, like tremendously. So that's how we were talking. So I guess when it finally happened and I was filming, um, there was, I was both witnessing it and I'd already participated in it, if that makes sense, as just as their friend, we'd already talked through a lot of what she was prepared to tell him. Um, but I wasn't, I, I just didn't know how it was going to happen or even necessarily if it would happen. Um, they could have easily had that discussion at night when I was, when I left them to go, um, you know, sleep wherever. I don't even remember where I was sleeping to be honest, but anyway, whenever I left them for the evening, but, um, yeah, it came up naturally then. And it's a testament to the process. I think that I've been describing just trust, just building trust. It's not fly on the wall. They never forget you're there. Uh, it's just, they trust that your intentions are, 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 are good enough to where, um, they don't have to worry. It's such a satisfying moment for a viewer because it just seems very plainly this natural, authentic resolution that happens in front of you. And you see the characters really change from that point forward. And there's not a lot of film left at that point, but it mm -hmm. seems like this natural crescendo where you see all the stuff that's been bubbling up in their lives for a long time kind of get out. And then they're fundamentally different people in the film after that. 
one of the prices you pay um, filming solo for so many years and getting so close to subjects like this for so many years is um, you do lose some, you do lose a level of objectivity in the edit. And for me, that's where I I have to have another set of eyes um, to keep me in check because uh, to make sure that my impressions of somebody will actually produce that emotional feeling in an audience who doesn't know them, um, who's meeting them for the first time in the edit. Uh, like I know too much, so to speak, you know, I, 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 there are no blanks for me um, I, I, to fill in. I know, you know, so, but when you're editing, you know, you're creating these gaps. And so the art of that, or the, the part that I, I definitely need um, other eyes to help me with an editor, producer, et cetera, all the creatives um, is making sure that the things that we're excluding, that I know what impression that's going to leave on an, on an audience that I'm delivering the emotional experience that I'm intending. How do you know what the ending to the story is when there really is no ending to a story of this kind? How, how do you know when you're done? You know, some films it's kind of by design, uh, you know, you're filming, you know, some documentaries are about an event. Um, and there's a really clean arc to those, you know, to those things, you know, you, you know, the classic, you know, the Odyssean arc, you leave home to go do something wild and you come back and you're, you know, that's the, you know, the change, you're something else and home is something different. Um, with this one, it was trying to wrap your head around three different arcs that you're intending to braid together to tell one larger story. But for the most part, you're, you're kind of along for the ride. And as you, as you, as time goes on, and you get to know them, there's a point to where you kind of get a sense of um, what they want and like what they, uh, you know, the, the twins wanted, they kind of wanted to feel better. I mean, it's that simple. And so then it's a question of like, okay, what are they doing? You know, what are they doing to try and feel better? What are they doing to try and, uh, you know, change their lives? Um Man, it's a really complicated, you know, it's fun. It's, I'm, I'm trying to like feel my way through it. And it's actually a really hard question to answer. I mean, it's, I don't, I didn't want to give you like the, I feel like a cop out to say like, it's kind of your gut. Uh, you just kind of know when it's finished. Um, but that might be the answer to the question. For me, this film was, it's a self-exploration and you're trying to, for me, it's like trying to figure out like, how do you, how do you navigate this? How do you navigate this bomb going off in your life? How do you survive it? How do you, how do you, how do you thrive in it? You know, if you like Susie and, you know, I was, I was watching the ending of the film again recently in preparation for this. And I was reminded of that. It's like, you know, there's so much about like trying to get better and trying to search for solutions to this um, malady and trying to change this and change that. And, but you know, the final words in the film are spoken by Susie and by Faye, the grandmother of the twins. And Susie says, I'm paraphrasing, but she says, you know, I, I know a lot of people who got, they, they're able to get like the cleanest, you know, house and, 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 you know, in the best environment possible and get away from all the things they, they feel are harming them, but they don't, she's in her point of view, they don't, they don't really get better. And that in her experience, the thing that 
heals you, the thing that you actually, that, that where people actually kind of get back on their feet is some kind of community, something to hold on to, uh, whether that's community or family. I think she mentioned sort of a spiritual, some something that like just you can hold on to um, that's bigger than you, that doesn't isolate you. She's like, that's, that's kind of the secret. And then Faye, you know, she's kind of speaking to all the you know, how hard it is to be a caregiver, what you have to sacrifice and all these things. But at the end, I feel like she just shrugs at the end. It's just like, you just stand by your own. That's all there is to it. There's no choice to make. You just stand by your own through whatever it is, through the thick and the thin. That's, that's the ending, you know, is that's the moral of the story is if you're, you know, getting sucked up in the details of, you know, what's hurting you or like, is this real or not real, you know, from the audience's point of view, it's kind of, beside the point it's to me it was on some level anyway it's a parable about community and love and how important it is for us to feel connected to each other and how we unravel when we're when we're not drew i, I want to thank you it's it really is a brilliant film i think by my standards the the threshold of brilliance is the film that just kind of lingers in your consciousness um, for a good period of time afterward. And I can just still kind of see some of the kind of the visual elements of that film just kind of in my mind's eye. And it's, it's just a beautiful, sensitive uh, exploration of a world that most of us would never, ever get to see. So uh, congratulations on making such a fine film. Thanks, Scott. It means a lot. This film is, it was my first and, uh, and, and I learned how to be a filmmaker through it. And because of the trust of all the subjects. So um, it, it means a lot. And it's really, really been wonderful talking about it. Um, so many years after it was finished with you and I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. And there you have it. That was Drew Xanthopoulos, incredible insights into a superb personal documentary. I want to encourage you to go see this film. It's free on Tubi, and it is really, really good. I also encourage you to join me in the weeks ahead as we continue on this series into the personal documentary. I'll be talking with an exciting lineup of accomplished filmmakers, including Robert Greene, Shalise Haas, and Zachary Levy. All of these filmmakers have constructed intimate portraits of super interesting people. We'll talk about how they handle the delicate human dance of working with very real and very human documentary subjects. See you next time.